Well, hey everybody, how are you? Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to the Daily Evolver Fireside Chat, which I do typically the first and third Wednesday of each month, except the first thing I want to say today is that I will be taking a little hiatus and we'll be back on the 21st of February. So, which is the third week of February. And so this will be the last one I do till then. And then I'll resume that schedule. All right. So today, um, well, we're going to hang out <laughs> like we normally do. And we can talk about anything we want. Uh, and uh, But I have a little program that we're going to start with. And yeah, it's the movie Maestro with uh, Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan. I think it's in contention for being an integral movie. Well, actually, I'd like to start by, you know, winding the clock back even further than the movie and just talk about Leonard Bernstein, who of course is an American iconic figure. And, uh, you know, I did a podcast a while back with Barbara Streisand, having read her book and being a huge fan of her, particularly in the early days. He's another one who hit the stratosphere at uh, in his mid twenties. And uh, in fact, this is how Manola Dar Dargis starts the review of the movie Maestro. Um, in the New York Times. She writes, Maestro, Bradley Cooper's intimate portrait of Leonard Bernstein takes flight with a terrific whoosh of exuberance. The young Bernstein, played by Cooper, has just gotten the phone call that will change his life. He's been asked to step in for an ailing guest conductor and lead the New York Philharmonic. It will be his conducting debut. Overjoyed, Lenny, as he is called, jumps up throws open a curtain, and then sprints out of his apartment to race, bathrobe flapping into his dazzling, very public future as an American genius. The real Bernstein was 25 and an assistant conductor with the Philharmonic when he took the Carnegie Hall stage on November 14th, 1943. So think about that time. To polite applause, because he was the substitute. He's 25 years old, polite applause. The program opened with Schumann, ended with Wagner, and by the time it was over, the house, as Bernstein's brother Burton put it, roared like one giant animal in a zoo. So I love that. That's great. And, and the movie does have that force of nature feeling that captures, I think, the spirit of Bernstein. And... Um, so my my experience with Leonard Bernstein is, you know, as a kid, he was on the public TV with his young people's concerts and his teachings. And I can't say that I was particularly absorbed by them, but I noticed them and there's four channels, you know, so I watched them from time to time. So I knew of him. And then, of course, you know, writing the um, writing the music for West Side Story. Uh, is a big deal. And I actually did a podcast on that uh, uh, where I reviewed another what I considered integral movie, and that's the Spielberg version of West Side Story that came out a couple of years ago. And so you can check that out if you're so inclined. But one of the most um, sort of striking um, things about that movie, and, and just the time, is it was created by four young Jewish gay guys and they were going to do Nazis, but Nazis, by the time they got to it, it seemed like it just wasn't a good idea. So they did Puerto Rican gangs and Italian gangs in New York City. And it's just this strange kind of 
lineage for that kind of a, uh, you know, the iconic uh, movie of the gritty streets of New York. Um, so anyway, so I, I knew of him for, from that, but uh, where I really got taken by Leonard Bernstein was maybe a decade or so ago when I happened upon this video on YouTube, which I'm going to play. And it's it's called The Greatest, on YouTube, you can check it out. It's called The Greatest Five Minutes in the History of Music Education. And it's Leonard Bernstein doing his young people's uh, uh, um, a lecture at Harvard in, um, I forget, 1963 or something like that. But at any rate, I edited it down to one minute. <laughs> but I love... I, it was just, it's it's an integral sensibility and it's an integral it's an integration of history and I'll let him talk so here we go what we're trying for is a very high overview of musical development in terms of a vocabulary constantly being enriched by more and more remote and chromatic overtones it's as if we could see the whole of music developing from prehistory to the present in 2 minutes so you think a guy like me is going to like that? Yes. So here he goes. Oh, the first thing is he talks about in prehistory, millions of years ago, he says, hominids in their hominid huts. They have one note. And there's actually two notes because there's an octave because female voices are naturally an octave above male voices. And so there's these this octave interval. And that's the first thing that happens. And that happens for a long, long time until this next thing happens. And... Here we go. Okay, now centuries pass, and the next interval of the harmonic series is assimilated by humanity, namely the fifth. And now we can be singing this. By those festival Now, of course, this little change brings us forward a mere 10 million years into the 10th century AD and into a fairly sophisticated musical culture. And again, and then he'll go on, and it's like he's walking up the stages of development. And again, here we go. Again comes a great leap as music absorbs the next overtone, the third. And just listen to the difference. It's a whole new music, richer, mellower, with a new coloristic warmth. Because once this tonic-dominant relationship is established, it's a field day for composers. Thanks to the perfecting of the temperate system, composers can now go freewheeling at their own chromatic pleasure. How does music contain this loose, runny chromaticism? By the basic principle of diatonicism. This great system of tonal controls was perfected and codified by Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, whose genius was to balance so delicately and so justly these two forces of chromaticism and diatonicism, forces that were equally powerful and presumably contradictory in nature. So cool, huh? Uh, and, and, and I love how at the end he's talking about this, this chromatic and diatonic, which I'm not sure I understood, frankly but that they're the forces of nature and they're the polarities of nature and that they, uh, the taming them, which Bach did in 
And and I and it made me look up Bach. So then I look up Bach and I read about Bach. And it, Bach wrote so many of his pieces as um, lessons for his students about how things worked. And I didn't really realize that. So that's that's cool too. So you realize just as a little aside that um, that lecture by Bernstein seems a little quaint. I would say. I mean, it's modern. You you can actually advocate for progress and modernity. Now there'd be all kinds of critiques of that and how it marginalizes that it's you know diminishing uh, it, you know indigenous music and um, and that this is only the history of music in the West and and I don't know what. But I just found it kind of like comforting. It's like comfort food to 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 see something that is just you know laying out the modern story. Okay, so then, so now we get to the movie. And um, I guess I'll start in Polynesian, <laughs> but uh, uh, we'll, I want to hear what you have to say. Namali went to see it. Uh, it wasn't enough to watch it on Netflix. It's on Netflix now. Uh, she and her mother went down to the theater in Denver to see it live, or not live, but in the theater. So I want to hear a little bit about that. Okay. So I started out with this movie. Oh my God, I loved it. Um, and then I kind of hated it. <laughs> uh, not for very long, but then I loved it again because I realized what he was doing because I didn't really realize what he was doing at first, which is he's telling the story of Bernstein uh, and not the whole story by any means. And I'll get to some criticisms of the movie uh, which tend to be that it didn't cover the thing that they wished it had covered. So there's, it never mentions West Side Story, for instance. It's very much uh, the story of his relationship. The, the core of it is the story of his relationship with Felicia Montenegro, who was his uh, wife. And they had three kids. And she was herself an actress, and she was an activist, and she was, you know, uh, a, a formidable person in her own right. Uh, and so the the story, which had a lot of family involvement, he has three living children, they are involved in the movie. So it very much focuses on his relationship with her. And it starts out, well, it starts out, in, it moves from the 40s to the 80s. So it starts out when he's an old man, but then it goes quickly into this developing relationship with Felicia. And um, she is, uh, and, and, and this is where I, I, I sort of like got like, is it, this is going to be dumb because it was in the style of an old movie of the forties. It was done in 35 millimeter. It was done in black and white. And they had, they talked in this mid Atlantic accent that drives me crazy because it's here. Here's what Google has to say about the uh, mid Atlantic accent. And this is the old movies where, where is it, darling? You know, this kind of thing. Um, it's a way of speaking English that is a mix of American and British features, characterized by a posh, melodic delivery with an emphasis on certain T sounds and soft vowels. Speakers tend to enunciate each word distinctly, and the accent has a somewhat rhythmic or musical quality, darling. So it's that thing. And... And you realize that, you know, when you watch old movies, not only is that happening, but there's a certain simplicity of thought that is, um, you know, I think it's actually the way they talk to each other. Um, and I think 
even though I found it thin and false and two presentations, this is the beginning of the relationship in this black and white. In fact, I think I have, um, hang on here. Yeah, I'm going to play this, but this is a, a snippet from that, th th that I'm talking about. I came to love it because I realized that he's actually trans. This is my big critique about movies, uh, overlaying modern or even postmodern sensibilities on earlier times instead of just letting them speak in their own voice. And I realized that is what he was doing. And then I loved it. So anyway, this is from that first part. Oh, that's uh, 12. No. <laughs> she's asking him to guess a number that she's thinking of. They're sitting under a tree back to back. Six. No. Eight. Can you try just Maybe I should train. stop and think for a second. You should stop and think, because I am sending it to you. 20. No. <laughs> so how long do we have to do this for? Well, we need to build up a very strong connection. Pretty darn good, actually, I came to realize. So anyway, then it moves into this era that I remember growing up through, and many of you will too, in like the six, it's the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf era where it's everybody's terribly therapized and they're, um, uh, they could be vicious with each other. And it has that New York sort of sophisticated academic sensibility to it. Everybody's terribly educated and they know way too much. And so this is um, the next thing, the, the sort of next era that he, I think Bradley Cooper nailed not just because he was telling the story from our perspective, but he was even speaking and thinking in the way that they did then. I, I, it's an artistic thing, so um, it blew me away. Anyway, here it is. This is later in their relationship. And um, again, think of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. You're letting his sadness oh, get stop the it. Let me it has finish. Let me finish me. what no. I'm going to say. No. I think no. you're letting your sadness get the better of you. It has nothing to do with me. That's... It's about you. Oh. So you should love it. Hate L in your heart. Hate in your heart and anger. For so many things, it's hard to count. That's what drives you. Deep, deep anger drives you. You aren't up on that podium allowing us all to experience the music the way it was intended. You are throwing it in our faces. How dare you. So, yeah, I thought that was a thrilling scene. And... It ends in a way that is, uh, you, you gotta be there. I'm not gonna ruin it, but wait for the punchline. So yeah, so they go through their marriage and he of course is bisexual. They never really say, and I love what, um, uh, again, this is a Manola Darlis, Dargis. She says, the movie makes the case that their love was genuine because he had lots of affairs with men. Even if Cooper and Mulligan never convincingly sync up. And I, I have to agree that they didn't have that uh, final chemistry. That, But again, I think that's part of the intention. Uh, she says, this disconnect doesn't seem intentional. But it also serves the story of the characters including early on when Lenny and Felicia's heightened emotions and smiles can feel forced like an act of mutual will. I'm not sure it wasn't uh, intentional. And um, it, it, at any rate, it's a brilliant um, uh, depiction of these two. All right, I'll stop there, Namali, and um, ask you what you think.
or to share what you think. I know some of what you think. I know you loved it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I've gotten a couple, uh, I've gotten one private message saying, please ask Jeff not to give away anything because they haven't seen the movie yet. So I'm sure uh, you'll be aware of that. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. And then, um, uh, and several private messages asking whether you have killed something and whether you're bleeding in your hands. No, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I only eat what I can kill. You know, so, no, uh, this is a magic marker. And I honestly yeah. can't even tell you where it came from. You would have been, yeah. So I put yeah. it, I put into the uh, chat saying, uh, in case you're wondering, Jeff's red marker is what's bleeding. Not yes. Your yes. So. Um, all right. So um, what did I think? You know, in all honesty, me having grown up in Sri Lanka and not having moved to the U.S. until I was quite a bit older, I didn't really know anything very much about Leonard Bernstein at all. Um, so for me, it didn't matter who he was just as a movie. I thought it was just an exceptional movie about an exceptional, talented, skilled human being. Um, and all of, you know, the warts and all, I just love people. I think that's why it was such an incredible movie for me just to be able to, um, so be given permission to look into someone. Hmm. They yeah. don't know that I'm looking at them and enjoying them and wondering about them and curious about them and doesn't matter whether they're dead or alive. Um, so just looking into his life, looking into his family, it was all just really delightful. I loved the entirety of the movie from start to end, except for the one little thing where they broke into dance and I didn't get it. Later, uh, I think Phyllis told me, who's on this call, told me that it probably had something to do with the West Side Story. Um, so, so then I was like, okay, I can forgive it then. But while watching it on Netflix, I thought, uh-oh, I think this might be going off the rails, but it steadied itself. And I just got more and more hooked um, throughout the movie. I think for me, ultimately, um, it's just fascinating for me to, to, I'm deeply moved by people's talent. I, I'm brought to tears by people's talent. Uh, often when I see people just really living their sort of God-given gift, so to say, um, and they also work hard at it, the work ethic that he speaks of. Um, it's just, it, yeah, it just kind of brings you to your knees when you get to be so privileged to be able to witness someone's talent in that way. Um, yeah, I think I'll just leave it at that. One other thing I'm glad you brought up Felicia's speaking style, because that's actually how a lot of sort of Indians and Sri Lankans where I come from because of our British colonization, a lot of Sri Lankans actually speak like that, especially the older generation. They kind of have that sing-songy, more British Raj English way of speaking. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm glad you eventually enjoyed Felicia because I really loved listening to her. Yeah, yeah. she actually, I mean, this is part of the performances. There was less of it from her at the end. And uh -huh. if you if you see, um, yeah, just they grew out of it. Yes. The culture grew out of it. It's yeah. an amazing thing. Yeah. And um, and you in the part I just played with Leonard Bernstein teaching the real Leonard Bernstein, you could hear just a little bit of it. It's basically at this point, he's just sort of an urbane New York 
you know, guy. So, yeah. But uh, so, Namali, so what India type would he be? Oh, um, for me, I think he, I experienced the portrayal of him, at least, as Bradley Cooper portrayed him, uh, very much an Enneagram type four. Yeah. Just really in his emotional world, uh, artist, creative, performer. Um, so you can see both how he's very in the middle of the three and the five. Yeah. Just sort of right. the capacity to focus on something and learn and perfect an art, um, but also the performer in him. And very, very classic Enneagram 4. And that scene that you started playing, in some ways, what Felicia is complaining to him about in that scene um, is very much a complaint that Enneagram 4s need to take to heart to. Uh-huh. And yeah. well, how would you put that? Well, it's just how the in emotional intensity, he says, hate drives you. Um, she and she said of, that about him, to him. Yes, yes. yes. Um, and the emotional intensity for a four drives them. It's not just anger uh, or hatred, but it's just any intensity of emotion drives an Enneagram four sometimes to their utter self-destruction itself. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's also what other people find hard about Enneagram fours um, to be around them because they're so sort of emotionally driven and oriented. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, it can sort of drive them into a space of isolation. Uh -huh. uh, so he, what she was saying is good for every Enneagram four to hear, I think. Yeah. Oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah, it's just all really just so wonderful. And, you know, I think also just Bradley Cooper. Oh, my goodness. I don't think that I've ever loved him as much in any other movie that yeah. he that I have watched of him. Not none, nothing. I think this one is yeah. his. Yeah. So what do you think of this the Star is Born? I didn't really like it that I didn't much. I don't know. I mean, I didn't even like it with Barbara Streisand. I liked it with Judy Garland, actually. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, I agree. He uh, just uh, shines. And the movie does have a force of nature to mm -hmm. it. it. It has, it's surprising. And yeah. it's, just, it's like you said, you, it almost lost you at this point. It almost lost me at this point. And there's something about a movie that loses you and it gets you back, you know, yeah. that uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it, you know, feels more real. Yeah. And the other thing also that I loved about, I guess, again, I, you know, none of us knew him, so we don't really know, but just the YouTube videos that I've seen. And then of course, Bradley Cooper's portrayal of him, um, his authenticity and his heartbreak at certain times of not being able to live fully a part of him, his, yeah. his gay, him being a gay man yeah. uh, or perhaps a bisexual man, but the gay part of him, you can see sometimes how he's heartbroken or there's a, there's a certain like a anguish even that yeah. you can't really live that fully. Yeah. Uh, but he was so fully and authentically committed to his partner and his children, and he loves them. Yeah. And his sensitivity, like when his daughter is hearing the rumors and he's communicating with the daughter, how his sensitivity prevents him from um, also being so authentic that and there's, there's a certain game that he navigates. 
No, Very it helps the story of, the, of yeah. that history. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I loved it too. And I think that was part of what um, threw me at first was they had a couple scenes with him, with his, with Matt Bomer, who was actually in real life as clar the clarinet player and they had an affair. And it was so vivid and sparkly. And then we went into the, um, with the, with Carrie Mulligan and Felicia, and it felt more staged. It actually was, you know, that's, it, that's a transmission of the, the truth of that, that I loved about the movie. And yet then the devotion to her, the children, uh, you know, it's a story a lot of people lived. It's what, all I can tell you, you know. And in fact, so just to get into some of the criticism of the movie, because, you know, it's, I think it's 70 some percent critics and 60 some percent um, viewers on Rotten Tomatoes. And be happy to hear what you folks have to say about it too. But uh, here's what Eileen Jones, a critic, uh, wrote. She said, let Bradley Cooper's maestro be the death of the biopic. <laughs> and so here's what she says. She says, she talked about Leonard Bernstein. There are far edgier biographical complexities that are barely touched or ignored altogether, but they're be being aired in many reviews and articles published in response to the film. They include the fact that Leonard had affairs, some of them lengthy, intense, and apparently meaningful with both men and women during his engagement and marriage to Felicia. Also, Felicia was aware of his other relationships very early on. I think the movie showed that. Uh, Leonard sought psycho psychotherapy to deal with what were then widely regarded as deviant desires. His engagement to Felicia dragged on for years while he delayed marrying her due to both the glamorous commitments of a booming career and his complicated love life. She finally broke it off, had a long relationship with the actor Richard Hart, blah, blah, blah. Then he talks about, uh, she talks about Leonard's lengthy and open relationship with Tommy Cothran, who collaborated with him on Mass. Tommy's seen here, sweet, long-haired, mostly non-speaking figure, but he left Felicia for him in real life, came back later, um, blah, blah, blah. So, and then also there's that whole part of his life at the edge, at the end, where he and Felicia hosted an infamous dinner party in New York City for the Black Panthers. And it went, I don't know, it went wrong. I don't know how it went, but it it, it was a, a scandal. And it was the beginning of this idea of radical chic. Leonard Bernstein exemplified this radical chic that Tom Wolfe satirized in his book, The Bonfire of the Vanities. So there's that whole part of his life. And also, and this is uh, the, a critique from the Wall Street Journal, Kyle Smith, it's just short, he says, the major failing of Maestro is it takes very little interest in Bernstein's artistry. I'm not sure that's true in a certain way, but anyway, he says, as the movie gets stuck in endless scenes of marital discontent, we get almost nothing on the art of conducting or composition. The creation of West Side Story, perhaps Bernstein's most famous work is skipped, and we don't get to know any of his famous collaborators. So... The criticism is that uh, with things that were left out of the movie, and um, and I actually appreciated it because um, the movie to me breathed. There were long scenes of music. I love that actually. You know when he when he says here that the, you know I guess Bernstein had uh, was frustrated that he wasn't taken more seriously as a serious composer. And there's this whole thing about his you know artistic uh, appreciation that they didn't get into. Mm -hmm. But they sure played a lot of his music. 
<laughs> and they showed him um, conducting. Uh, and I, I, I'll, sh I'll show at the end a YouTube that shows Bradley Cooper versus Leonard Bernstein conducting that last scene. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not it's not a giveaway. It's just a piece of music. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Um, Jeff, one other thing about the critiques about any movie or biopic, for example, um, there was the same thing. Um, I mean, the same thing can be said about many movies that people have made about situations, events, people. Um, some of the critiques forget that it's always going to be dramatized for a movie that is 90 minutes, mm -hmm. maybe two and a half or three hours long. It's always going to take certain details and it's going to be made into some kind of an artistic or interpretation or a metaphorical something. If you want the biographical truth, then watch a documentary. Yeah. You know? yeah read a book. Good point. Everybody's got a goddamn opinion. <laughs> exactly. Just so like what's yours? <laughs> so anybody, uh, if you are interested in sharing about this or any of the, you know, maybe the holiday movies you saw or whatever you're, or anything in the news, uh, you know, we'll hang out a little bit longer here. So raise your hand. And so, and I'll play, actually, maybe I'll do that. And, and we'll close out Leonard Bernstein. Let me just play this. And if you're interested in talking about something, raise your hand and we'll come back. But this is the, um, this is a piece where they show Leonard Bernstein conducting, it's Mahler's, I think, Resurrection, um, Symphony Number no. 2, and it's this finale, and you'll see side by side uh, Bradley Cooper and Leonard Bernstein. And so here we go. Pretty good, huh? Now, I will say that it points out to me that I don't really understand what conducting is as an art form. I mean, what is it that makes an audience uh, <clears throat> be slightly disappointed, or maybe majorly disappointed, that the understudy conductor is going to come on? He's 25 years old. He walks out. You pull, applaud politely. And then by the end of this uh, of the concert, you're roaring like a giant zoo animal as one, as the audience. <laughs> I mean, what has that conductor done that makes that happen? And I, I kind of get it, I do, but you know, I, I'm, it's an art form I'd like to appreciate more. Anyway, yeah, do anybody want to share anything or ask any questions or Carolyn? You know, as you're, uh, explaining that it it struck me because I've heard um, about accolades for Bernstein a lot about uh, my parents' generation really really loving Bernstein like as crazy for him as our generation might have been for the Beatles and I think you know putting it in the integral perspective what strikes me is that he was on a wavelength like a new when he got on that stage as a twenty six year old. He was introducing a way of interpreting music that had not been heard before. And he struck that chord in everybody in the audience. And it was like, it's like hearing the Beatles for the first time and getting really excited. He did that. And to me, integral wise, maybe it was like an opening for a mass group of people to, 
to hear something in a new way that they hadn't heard before. Yeah. In other words, shifting a little bit upwards up that spiral of conscious awareness, right? Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. And that's that's always the sort of <clears throat> mystery and thrill of a live performance where somebody on stage actually has could create an energetic container where something is happening, something is moving. It's like Shannon Pernetti, I see. It's energetic phenomena. So it's in it's in the we space, it's in the in, interpersonal space, and energetic, and uh, I you know it when you see it, and it's so thrilling when you do, and 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 again, it, it's, I made this case about Barbara Streisand when she's 22, 23 years old, she created a sound that we had never heard before, in the world, in the cosmos that we know of, sort of created a whole new pattern, and apparently he did too, so. Thank you, Carolyn. Mary. Um, so, so I just say I, I loved it. I loved it from the beginning to the very end. It didn't lose me at any point. Um, <laughs> I would see it again. I'm so glad I did like drive over an hour to see it on the big screen. Um, and I thought at the very beginning, the opening scene, the um, the movement was a West Side Story. It, it was, I don't remember specifically what was happening, but it was like, oh, it had, I think it was actually when, when Bradley Cooper was, when he got that phone call and he's like running to the theater and there was a whole feeling of the beginning of West Side Story. And um, and I loved all the music and I, I, it reminds me of my dad who loved classical music and I loved Candide and the, uh, the Laudie Dot, that song. So I just thought, and then my friend and I, um, What's interesting, one of the interesting things is the whole sexuality part, like he's, his energy is so big and, and I, like, I don't know how you would even describe his sexuality, like bisexual doesn't seem to contain it. And to be in a relationship, <laughs> to be married to someone like that and to, um, you know, that takes, uh, you know, takes something that, that I don't think I would have, but it, that was um, very intriguing to me and how he clearly loved his wife and he just loved everybody. He loved people. He, he, I think he said that, that he loved people. Yes, he so, did. Um, I thought that was very interesting also, and I appreciated that portrayal. Yeah. No, I, 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 I actually, Namali, you said this when you were beginning your to, to, to share your thoughts. You said, I just love people so much. And that's actually a line from the movie that he said. Uh, and uh, it's also an Enneagram 4, so you, which you could come out as healthy Enneagram four. <laughs> so yeah, thank you, Mary. Um, so um, yeah, Shannon. Hold on here. You know, it, it reminded me so much of the sexual part of my dear male gay friends through the 50s and the 60s and the, what they went through. And uh, it was a beautiful portrayal. It really touched me. Yeah. Well, thank you, Shannon. Uh, it, the, another uh, uh, show that I really very much appreciated over the holidays was the, uh, I think it's Showtime, Fellow Travelers uh, with yeah. Matt Bomer. And it's the story basically of the same era from the late 40s to the 80s, uh, <clears throat> starting with the McCarthy hearings and on sexual deviancy and through AIDS. It's four or five part series. Very good. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it, but it's that same 
you know, and he's married, but uh -huh. Matt Bomer character's married and he has kids and he loves, it's a very similar story. And AIDS brought an end to a lot of that. It's funny, you know, the ways of evolution, uh, that the tragedy of that made people get real mm -hmm. in a way that they hadn't. So, um, David? Yeah, um, I was kind of stimulated by the um, the point that you had raised, Jeff, um, and it kind of taps into what Carolyn was, was sharing. Um, not that I am a conductor, but having been a musician, traveling musician, in-town musician, and, and leading groups and bands and those kinds of things, a conductor is someone who holds the group together and doesn't just set the tone uh, in terms of tempo, but sets the, the the tone and the direction of the music itself. You, it's um, like a movie has a director. If you don't have a director, it can just it, it spills out all over the place and doesn't have a direction in which it's it's going. Um, so uh, I'm getting yes, a sign well here. Well said. Uh, I'll just say one more thing. Um, if I can, um, I, I want to say that since he gave you started this with his history lesson, really quick history lesson, the modernist thing is really important to capture because music complexified to a profound degree. But towards the end of that modernist way of composing music, um, it became a very heady, heady thing. And so people would go kind of out of a sense to applaud the intelligence that went into this or or to have kind of a, a reflective space in which to enjoy music. And what it seems that he's doing during this time is he's bringing it down into the heart. He's taking all that head-centered modernist complexity and he's bringing a sense of passion and drive to, to the music. You, you see him move to tears when he's conducting. We're as I am wired as a four, I moved to tears when I'm watching him conduct the music. And so mm -hmm. I think his service to music in that regard is almost a bridge to what would become rock and roll and other uh, more gutsy, heart-centered forms of music is he's bringing not just a head-centered approach, which isn't bad, but is is kind of integrating all three centers. You see how much his body is into it, his heart and he's brought a sense of thoughtfulness to it. So I'll I'll rein my passion back in. But this is I love this subject. Yeah, man. I'm feeling the transmission right now. Yeah. So good. Yes, yes, yes. Phyllis. Well, first, in regard to what I, I was just hearing, um, I grew up watching Leonard Bernstein, the Young People's Concerts on TV. And then when I was older, I went to, you know, Wynton Marsalis um, continued that series and I would go to watch him live and um, and saw several of them. And one of the beautiful things that Leonard Bernstein left for Wynton Marsalis was this incredible sense of joy in the music. And there was no headiness at all in those young people's concerts. He would take like happy birthday and take it apart. And the kids would just like revel in it. It was really, really it was just such a beautiful thing to be a part of. And it was such a, a, a legacy of Bernstein, you know, was so obvious in it. That was one thing. And, and the other thing, you know, Namali, you were talking about, um, you know, the, 
like just the love. And I always think that that love is an incredible that the talent, great talent like that, is an incredible aphrodisiac. And that that his the the way that he loved was why people loved him in such an accepting open manner because he loved with that kind of passion he loved in that way that 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 her loving him back in that way and it gave him it it, it in many ways i thought gave him permission to be himself with her i, I love the film i really love the film oh, good. And, uh, thank you so much for for talking about it and just and thanks for talking about barbara streisand last time i love that <laughs> <laughs> yeah Art, right? You know, what can you say? It's so such an important thing. Thank you, fellas. Robert. On New Year's Eve, uh, I found myself watching something uh, as a filler until midnight, and I got so entrenched in it that I forgot to break off and watch the ball fall. So, <laughs> And this is um, a documentary on Netflix called American Symphony about John Baptiste. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it because it's about how he has composed something that was only performed once at Carnegie Hall called American Symphony. Mm -hmm. But if there's a another musician who I would nominate as being integral, it's probably John Baptiste. He also has won five Grammys in the same year. And his wife, he was doing all of this while his wife, uh, Sulaika Juad, was in, getting a bone marrow transplant for because she has had leukemia since she was 22 years old. She's also pretty young. Important. She has, you know, life interrupted video blog and things like that. You know, um, he is just one of those people that's so talented, as Namali said, that it almost makes you cry. How could somebody have so much talent? And he can sing, he can compose, he can play music. He he is just very present too. Like when he is doing music, the first thing he does when he comes out to an audience is he yells, "Hey, hey!" And he just seems to like just bring you into the moment you know and mm -hmm. he started out you know he was the band um on the tonight show with uh, uh what's his name colbert right colbert Stephen and colbert. he has just left but late he, um, yeah and, and his group was called is called was called stay human and okay. he was doing stay human while he was at juilliard for many years and they would do these all these unpaid things they would play in the subway they would play everywhere it's like music is for people and music is to make people happy. That's his thing. Yeah. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's, it's on Netflix. Uh, I would like to hold up here, the whole symphony. I can't find it anywhere because they show part of it on this. Yeah. Film. yeah. American symphony, American symphony, John, yes. ba John Baptiste on uh, Netflix. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Robert, thank you. Yep. And I see in the um, a chat that there's uh, Carolyn posted Paul McCartney, recently posted a video where he talks about the frequencies of music. So I've always loved that, you know, the, um, we're, we're pattern people, right? We integral people, so love it, thank you. All right, anybody else? Any thoughts? All right, so we're complete, perfect and whole. <laughs> hey, Namali, you saw another movie that wasn't edgy um, uh, enough. Um, yesterday, the boys in the boat. Good, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Very. Uh, it's a feel-good movie, but it's. I love true stories, anyway. So, 
Um, it was just really sweet. It's a 1936 Seattle and everybody's extremely poor and uh, two young men are destitute and they decide the only way that they can have a room paid for and make some uh, find some way to live was to join the rowing team uh, of the university. So it's a grueling, grueling training that they have to go through to get into the team that eventually uh, becomes the American gold medal at the 1940 Olympics, the same Olympics that Jesse Helms went, Jesse Owens went to in um, under Hitler's rule. So the movie is not about the Second World War by any means. It's just it's just a beautiful um, movie of human spirit and leadership and vulnerability and love and tenderness and giving up and, and coming back. And, yeah. and beefcake. And what was the name of it again, Namali? Boys in the Boat. Boys in the Boat, okay. Boys in the Boat. And I watched the movie and I left feeling, oh my God, how can any man who might watch or how, you know, watching that movie, I, I said this to Jeff because my dog was at Jeff's house and I want to, I went to pick my dog up. And so Jeff and I briefly spoke and I was like, oh my God, having seen that movie, I don't know how any man is not gay. <laughs> how every man is not gay. Yes. <laughs> that There's something movie. about a rowing team. You know? And it's a George Clooney movie. So yeah, just another one to add to our list. Nina? Uh, oh, <clears throat> yeah, I was going to ask him, I um, I had never seen Six Feet Under when it came out back because I think it was on HBO or something. And people had recommended it over the years and it came out on Netflix and I started watching it. And oh, my God, it's it's really uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, um, yeah. oh yeah. I just I'm uh, astonished at what I missed <laughs> and yeah. how funny but, and it would be fun sometime to hear your take on it. Yeah, I I loved it at the time, and I, I it's made by the same creator. I'm trying to remember his name, who made another movie that I would argue is like an integral movie, and that's uh, American Beauty. Uh, where uh, yes, every perspective is sort of loved in a way that's um, I always appreciate. Uh, and uh, so Six Feet Under, and you're right, it's just now new on Netflix, and I have a couple friends who are watching it, and. Uh, I'm tempted to check it out. It's one of the first of the really high quality episodic shows like back in the Soprano days. And yeah, so good. All right, everybody. Well, um, happy new year, 2024. Oh my God, this year coming up. Um, well, we'll talk about it, uh, and, but we'll take a little break until uh, the third week of February, which is again, the 21st of February. Namali, anything people ought to know? Thank you so much for inviting us. So, thank you so much for um, the Integral Life community. Anything we need to know? Um, if any one of you know or happen to live in the, uh, and know others or happen to live in the local Boulder, Denver area, we have a in-person meetup, which meets every first and third Sundays at 3 p.m. Mountain Time um, at the Boulder Public Library. So come on over if you're free for that or if you happen to be visiting Boulder, Denver area. Um, and there's a lot of other great events. Uh, Phyllis and Wheaton who are on this call, they uh, lead the integral staging um, every other Wednesday that Jeff typically does the fireside chat on every first and third Wednesdays. 
and uh, Phyllis and Wheaton leave in a lead integral saging every second and fourth Wednesdays. So maybe that's something that well, that's some good of to know at the same time. Yeah. yeah. It's no, it's not at the same time. Sorry. It's at 12 noon um, mountain time. Got it. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mark Foreman has been leading an excellent session, which unfortunately is coming to an end with his book, The Monster's Journey about um, developmental trauma and spirituality. Uh, it's been a six session series. Even if you have missed the series, I would highly recommend buying The Monster's Journey book just like how I would encourage all of us to to buy and read and support all people who are trying to do something integral in this world. So, yeah. Right on. Well, thank you, Navali, uh, and uh, thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm. Bye, folks. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Have a great trip. We'll do. I'm off. Thanks, everybody. Bye, bye.